0: The Healthy Alabama Podcast is sponsored by Enroll Alabama, a program that enrolls Alabamians in the health insurance marketplace.
1: Enroll Alabama is a project of AIDS Alabama. For more information, visit the website AIDSAlabama.org. Welcome to another episode of the Healthy Alabama Podcast, sponsored by Enroll Alabama, which is a subsidiary or a project of AIDS Alabama. And you can visit the AIDS Alabama website, uh, for this uh, great nonprofit based in Birmingham to get more information about what they do and how they are helping the people of this state. I'm David Person, the host and producer of the Healthy Alabama Podcast. We produce it in partnership with WJOU, Oakwood University Radio, 90.1 FM. I'm glad to have with us in the studio today Dr. Zaria Morrell. She is someone who has been in and out of the state, I'd say, what, over the past 10 years, 20 years?
0: Oh, gosh, since 2002. Okay,
1: so 16 years. All right. She has the distinction of being, as I understand it, one of the few female African-American pediatric surgeons in the country. Is that right?
0: Yes, there's only 13 of us.
1: Oh, the lucky 13.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, 13.
1: How did you end up doing pediatric surgery? What was your journey to that that specialty?
0: Oh, that's a long road. <laughs> I'm going to go way back then. So I first fell in love with pediatric surgery when I was in medical school. And as I went through the process of going into surgery residency, I loved it still, but then I got exposed to other disciplines I did initially go down the pathway of doing two years of research, anticipating that I might pursue pediatric surgery, but as you progress through surgery, it's a five-year residency and most people do two years of research, so I'm approaching year six and seven of this whole process and I opted to do a laparoscopic fellowship. After I did the laparoscopic fellowship, I was married at the time, and um, my husband and I opted to come to Huntsville because he wanted to come back and be a student at Oakwood University, or then college. So then worked here in Huntsville for seven years, used to cover Dr. James Gilbert, who was the only pediatric surgeon in town, who came here in December of 2004. And as I worked alongside him and helped him out with, you know, complex cases, or when he was away on vacation, I realized I really liked what he did. And I was liking his group of patients a little bit more than my group of patients. And so as I was approaching 40, I kind of did a life assessment and said, am I where God wants me to be? And Gilbert had been encouraging me to consider going back to do additional training to become a pediatric surgeon. So I went through that process and end up getting a position at Cincinnati Children's to do a fetal surgery fellowship. I stayed at Cincinnati Children's and did a vascular malformation fellowship and then got an opportunity to be the pediatric surgery fellow at the University of Louisville and then uh, stayed on as faculty at Louisville. Um, I was there for a total of seven years. Again, approaching 50 now, I'm doing another life assessment, and my mom died while we were away in Louisville. My father's aging Wanted some more quality time with my husband and my children. And so Dr. Gilbert has always offered and been a strong supporter and said, if you ever want a job, uh, we'll have one available for you if you want to come look. So.
1: And here you are. And here I am. Okay. What specifically did you find compelling about specializing in doing surgery on children? What made that so compelling?
0: They don't ask to be sick. And the parents don't ask for their children to be sick. And so it's just such a rewarding discipline. The children are so innocent. They usually will tell you exactly what's on their mind. Or I keep my head shaved ball and they're like, why why do you have no hair? I mean, they just speak their mind. No filters. I love that about children. Very few children have chronic conditions that come from years of smoking or eating poorly or not exercising. Uh, So I like how quickly they heal. And I really, really like operating and on, on taking care of neonates. I'm just totally fascinated with their pathology and the fact that parents often go through, the mommies go through a pregnancy, weren't expecting a child with a problem, and then this child comes out with something not right. Either they don't have an opening to their anus or they can't poop.
1: Is that common?
0: Enough in my world. Really? Uh, yeah. Wow. So you okay. can have something called imperforate anus, or you can have something called Hirschsprung's disease, where the nerves to the colon have informed normally, so the colon can't relax to let mm. stool come out. Um, and when that happens, they often need to have surgical interventions to help the babies poop better, whether they have a colostomy or um, they have to have that abnormal segment of colon removed.
1: Mm. You see a lot with babies and children. What are some other common things that you see?
0: The most common things we see are hernias. So. Inguinal hernias, swelling in the groin or in the scrotum of neonates and little children. Umbilical hernias, especially in African-American population, about 30 to 50 percent of African-Americans have an umbilical hernia.
1: Please explain what that is.
0: An umbilical hernia is failure of the closure of the abdominal wall, otherwise known as an outie. <laughs> so when you have an outie at your belly button, that's an umbilical hernia. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm.
1: You said thirty to fifty percent of African American babies are born with with yep. Audis or yes. or 30 umbilical to 50%. hernia. Mm-hmm. Well, what is that about? Why is it so predominant with us?
0: We don't understand. You can even see it in people of African, true African descent.
1: Oh, same same percentages. Same thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Thirty to fifty percent. Now, typically, small ones, ones that are less than a half an inch in size, will close on their own by the time the child is about three to four years old. Um, And if it hasn't closed by that time, that's when we typically recommend that surgery is performed.
1: What's the danger?
0: So as they grow older, the hernia can get worse. It can widen, especially if there's heavy lifting. If a female patient becomes pregnant, it can get larger. The hole can get larger and bowel can get stuck inside. And then you can have a blockage of your intestines. So that can become a major surgery.
1: So if the data shows that, African-American babies are predominantly affected by this, disproportionately affected by this. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that there are African-American babies that are going undiagnosed, undiscovered?
0: So so typically what will happen is an African-American baby is born and will be found to have an umbilical hernia followed closely by the pediatrician. And typically, like I said, if it's less than an half an inch in size or about a centimeter, those will close spontaneously on their own by the time they're about three years old. What I have seen I think is interesting here in Huntsville is that I've seen quite a few patients who are coming at seven, eight, nine, ten years old with umbilical hernias, all because the parents were told that, oh, it would get smaller over time. You don't need to do anything until they're five And the reason why we like to recommend doing it at a younger age, around three or four years of age, is most kids are smaller at that time. They're very active, so they don't have a lot of body fat. And they're also young enough that they're not really scared. I mean, they don't really recall having surgery at three to four years of age. Usually once you get to seven, eight, nine, they have some anxiety Mm -hmm. associated with it and just the simple act of having an IV placed makes them scared of needles, and so they have a little bit more personality and are more afraid.
1: I'm going to inject something into this conversation, and if I'm way off base, then just let me know.
0: Sure.
1: I've interviewed through the years physicians like Dr. David Williams at Harvard, Dr. Ron Wyatt, who at one time was very highly placed in the public health world in the United States and still is considered a, actually a global expert, and of course he used to practice here in Huntsville, a friend of mine, about the impact of race. I've talked to them and and other people about the impact of race on health and wellness and, and medical care. And one of the things I know from these conversations and from uh, some reading I've done is that There's a bias, there's a documented bias in the medical community as it relates to people of color that manifests itself in misdiagnosis, in under, I'll just say, providing care that is less, I'll say, considerate Mm -hmm. than what they would provide to a Caucasian person. There's this sort of tendency to look at black people and say, well, they can tolerate pain more, black children, black people can. And I'm, I know I'm speaking very broadly here, sure. and I'm not saying all doctors, but mm-hmm. they don't seem to take as seriously conditions that are manifested in our people, mm-hmm. black people. Mm-hmm. So I wonder again about how many children are born with this condition. And as you said, you know, they're told, oh, well, it'll fix itself or they're otherwise dismissed in some way, mm-hmm. and then it creates further problems down the line. Now, again, I'm, I'll admit I'm insinuating race into this. So you tell me if you
0: think I'm, I'm off. I think that there is some component of truth to that. I think the flip side is, is that sometimes parents are advised to have their children assessed by a surgeon to evaluate for surgical repair, and some parents are like, well, I don't want that right now. Or they'll come and they'll say, I'd rather wait it out. And then, I mean, I've even had a 12-year-old with an umbilical hernia. And and I asked the mom, I said, how come you didn't have this fixed when she was three or four? She says, well, I was told it would close and I just forgot about it. So I've seen both sides. I've seen where, I think as a general rule, though, most pediatricians will send children with umbilical hernias to be surgically evaluated. I even think that sometimes they send them too early. They'll send them when they're a year old. And we prefer not to fix them when they're that young because we still know that it can close significantly on its own. And so we really want to get it at the time where it has closed the maximal amount. And so that way we can do the surgery. Also, when the child has better posture, is stronger in their core, so they have nice strong muscles that we can use our stitches on. So typically, a neonate won't have very strong musculature. So I can't say that I have personally seen a frank bias from a pediatrician standpoint. I think it's multifactorial.
1: Okay, well, I would say that's good news then, Mm -hmm. because I'm assuming you don't dispute Dr. Williams, Dr. Wyatt, and the others who have Documented and examined the ways that racial bias. Oh,
0: there is a strong racial bias, I think, in many areas as a general rule. But I think for, in particular, umbilical hernia.
1: Right.
0: I can't say that I've seen right. that in my experience.
1: Okay. Okay. So as a, as an African American woman who is a specialized physician, one of 13 in the nation, as you said, what are your specific concerns about health and wellness and medical care as it relates to people of color?
0: Oh, that's such a broad topic. (laughs) Um, For me as a physician, I think first and foremost, I have to practice what I preach. So although I'm a surgeon and I really love operating and doing surgical procedures, I think so much can be prevented from lifestyle changes, just eating healthy and Walking regularly or lifting weights, that's kind of my new thing these days is weightlifting.
1: Wait, I don't see any. You, do you have guns?
0: They're not that big. But oh, you got, yeah,
1: you got muscle. They're getting there. <laughs>
0: they're getting there. I work out with a trainer at 5 a.m.
1: Oh, do you? Yes, I do. Wow, before you do before surgery. Before I go
0: to, yes, I work out with a the trainer, then I do about 45 minutes of cardio, then I shower at the gym and go to work.
1: I, this is a digression because you're on a you're on a path that that I think is important that we need to discuss, but I'm just curious. I know for myself through the years when I've worked out sometimes it affects the way I'm able to do certain things after that mm-hmm. you know i mean does it not affect your surgery no. your ability no mm-hmm. not at all I'm a
0: little sore, but I drink plenty of water <laughs> okay right. so I try to wash out the lactic acid and keep my muscles uh, as limper as I can okay and I get regular massages usually about once or twice a month and Uh Try to stretch some, but yes, I try to practice what I preach, but no, working out doesn't affect my surgery. I would never um, compromise my ability to do surgery.
1: Not at all suggesting that. No, no, no. I understand. I was just wondering, Mm -hmm. you know, did it, okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. I might get more hungry when I'm in surgery because I've done a particularly hard workout and... I'll say, y'all, I'm getting hangry, (laughs) hangry, hangry, Hangry.
1: hungry and angry, hungry
0: and angry. (laughs) I'm never mean to the people in the room. I just try to forewarn them and tell them as soon as I'm done, I'm going to go eat.
1: Right, right. So (laughs) make sure you get out of my way. Yes. Clear a path. Clear a path so I can go eat. (laughs) Let's go back to what you were saying about your concerns about the black community as it relates to health and wellness and medical care, you were saying that you think we have to, uh, as a people, become much more health conscious, Absolutely. Uh, walk, exercise, diet. Mm-hmm. What, mm-hmm. what else were you thinking?
0: Getting regular checkups, uh, going to see your physician, having a conversation with the physician. I think that's very important. I Oftentimes I find that people from different cultures and different time periods, older people, there's this certain inherent distrust of physicians, and I understand they may have walked a different path and have been exposed to different sets of circumstances. But I always tell my patients, if you don't like what I'm telling you, please get a second opinion or, you know, tell me. I want there to be an authentic, open conversation with my families because I'm very open and authentic with them. And so I think from a comprehensive standpoint, there needs to be open dialogue as well as an expectation that somebody's going to follow through on what they say they're going to do on both sides. Mm-hmm. Know, so
1: mm-hmm. any particular concerns about health and, and wellness and medical care as it relates to women?
0: Mammograms are huge um, when it comes to that. My own mother, uh, unfortunately, even though she has two children who are in the medical field thought that if you got a mammogram that you would be exposing yourself to too much radiation and it would have a negative effect on you and I would try to talk her down from that and unfortunately my mother died of cancer somebody who is one of the most healthy health conscious people like from the standpoint of she always ate very clean and she was always in the garden working but she never went and got checkups and when she had warning signs she ignored them so don't ignore warning signs. Pain is a warning sign. Um, decreased bowel movements is a warning sign. Blood in your stool is a warning sign. A woman should examine her breasts once monthly. If you find an abnormal lump, you should know your breasts better than anybody else, even better than your husband. You should know your breast. And so if you find something there that wasn't there before, go get it checked out. Don't delay. There's no reason to delay because oftentimes that first warning sign is an indication that something has been going on for a period of time beforehand and might be a little further along in the process than you would like.
1: I interviewed Dr. Pernessa Seal some weeks ago on this podcast. She's the founder of Healthy Churches 2020, and her goal is to try to help African-American churches and African-American church-going people to be more healthy, and, you know, she talks about things like diet and so forth, but inherent in that conversation is this real obvious concern about the fact that many many black people who go to church are very obese Mm. or are suffering, Mm -hmm. you know, with maladies of Mm -hmm. of various types that are preventable or correctable. Yes. You agree with all of that?
0: Absolutely, 100%.
1: (laughs) Do you think there's something, I mean, is there something about church culture? I don't think it has anything to do with the theology, but, but with church culture maybe that makes it that way?
0: I've never thought of it from that standpoint. I do think we are creatures of habits and we tend to do what we see our family members do. I forget where I heard this story from about how a husband and wife were getting married and she was making some roast beef or something. And as she was putting it into the dish, he noticed that she didn't cut off the ends like his mother did. And he got really upset that she didn't cut off the ends of the beef to put it in the pan. And um, he's like, you did it wrong. And she's like what did I do wrong? It doesn't taste good. And he was like, my mother always cuts off the ends of the beef. So he went back and he talked to his mother because it caused a riff. And she said, son, I always cut off the ends because I didn't have a pan big enough.
1: I knew you were going <laughs> to say that.
0: <laughs> and, and so we're creatures of habit. You just do things because you see other people do it.
1: Right, that right. doesn't
0: make it right or wrong. Right, it's just... Right. Habit. And so, unfortunately, at many dinner meals, there's always rolls. Do we always have to have dinner rolls with lots of butter present at the table? Why can't we just have a big colorful salad? Do we always have to have mac and cheese and fried chicken? Or, I just, I feel like we're creatures of habits. I'm guilty, but I do try to eat smaller portions. I do deliberately try to leave off the bread. I always try to eat a huge salad before I eat anything else. Sometimes I eat two plates of salad. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, just because I do love the green stuff. And yeah. It's it's kind of a freebie because the calories are so low unless you pour a whole bunch of ranch dressing on it. Well, well that kind of defeats the purpose. <laughs> um, and then then I also don't drink juices and sodas and stuff. I deliberately like only drink water hmm. or tea, herbal teas without the sugar. I've learned to really appreciate that. Um, just the flavors. And I think so much of our food, even just, I just came back from London and the food in England and in Italy is so much less saltier and less really? sugary. Okay. But what they're serving for breakfast are apple pies, <laughs> is a, an apple tart, but it is so much less sugar that you, you're really enjoying eating the apples and not mm. all mm. the syrupy, cinnamon flavoring that goes with it. So I did notice the difference in the quality of the food. And I think in American culture, way too much salt, way too much sugar, way too much pop or soda, whatever you want to call it.
1: Mm. Yeah, I agree. All of those things, especially that that uh, the high sugar content and the Mm -hmm. soda content. But I was just sitting here thinking when you talked about not eating bread that it does seem as though bread has become bad. And I'm wondering how did that how did that happen, and is that really true?
0: I don't know that bread in and of itself is bad, but, but so
1: many people say what you say. Correct. Like, I think what know. it
0: is is though is that we have so much genetically modified food that mm. because we're not mm. getting the wheat straight from the ground mm. and somebody sifting it and coarsely grinding it and then coming and making bread from scratch at home. Mm. And you're getting the stuff that's off the shelf that you don't know how long it's been sitting there. So I'm sure there's preservatives in there and mm. all those additional side effects that come with that. I mean, I grew up eating bread a lot, but my mother made bread from scratch.
1: Yeah.
0: And, yeah. She, and she went out of her way to get like organic flour and all those things. And so I think it's just a different time. We're in America accustomed to convenience and having things at our ready disposal. And I think if we all had to till the land and eat what we grew and eat what we killed, we would probably eat totally differently.
1: And we'd probably be healthier. Oh, yeah, Yeah. because you
0: have to expend a certain amount of energy just to do all that work in your yard.
1: Yeah, the changing of the culture. And I know that my maternal grandfather was a farmer. He owned a farm in the Florida Panhandle. I respect that. But, you know, that's not my life. I can't relate to that. Mm -hmm. I grew up in the city and, you know, whatnot. But it just seems to me as though what you're saying, you're making an excellent point. And then, of course, we didn't have to worry about, you know, when we were growing up, we didn't have to worry about genetically modified foods. Mm -hmm. And that's such a real issue now. And I know I purposely, when I shop... I look for that. Yes. I look for non-GMO that non-GMO label. I do too. I don't always find it, and I and I often wonder. And and I'm really happy if I can get a product that's non-GMO and organic. Then I'm like, okay, I'm straight. But the reality is, you know, we don't know. And Mm -hmm. if you eat out, you don't know what you're eating. You know, we we eat out, and we, you know, we just it, it does seem as though we're much more vulnerable to. Things that are just really out of our control.
0: Correct. And so I think it's interesting that with GMO products, somebody told me once, I'm backtracking, that when you go to a grocery store, you should just go and only shop in the perimeter. Yeah, I've
1: heard and, that. And just
0: skip all the aisles because the aisles has all the processed stuff that's been on the shelf for who knows how long. But, um I have read a a fantastic book. I don't remember the name of the author off the top of my head, but it's called Pharmacology. And it's not PH, but it's F A R. Pharmacology. And it's talking about grass-fed beef. It's talking about the microbiome. It's talking about a lot of
1: what is the microbiome what is that so
0: the micro oh i'm totally fascinated with the microbiome i wish i was younger and i could start all over again cuz i would probably <laughs> do research in the microbiome but the microbiome is uh the bacteria that lives in our intestines and how that affects how we digest food and so we do know that um not just research in animals but um in humans as well that you can take different types of bacteria um probiotics and prebiotics that you can use bacteria from skinny mice and put those bacteria in fat mice and the fat mice will become skinny. Get out of here, really? Yeah, oh yeah, that's very well documented in the literature. Mm -hmm. Because the way those bacteria process the food affects your body's absorption of the food. One of the things that are also very interesting, sometimes you can have overgrowth of abnormal bacteria to the point that it causes your colon to be sick. And I don't know if you've ever heard of fecal transplants, but they're actually doing that where they actually take feces from a healthy person and they put it in a capsule form and they give it to the sick person so they can basically recolonize the sick person's intestines and reestablish healthy bacterial counts in the colon. Fecal transplants are a real thing happening today.
1: That's a area of science. I know that. it sounds
0: gross, but that's, it's very, yeah, very important wow. because it's bacteria. It's basically bacteria.
1: So, you're saying the solution to my weight problem is I need to find a skinny person (laughs) and get their bacteria in me some kind of way. That would solve my problem. It
0: might help. (laughs) It might help.
1: All this exercise and diet, just forget about that. Just get their bacteria and I'll be okay.
0: (laughs) Also, the China study, I don't know, you probably have heard of the China study. Um, T. Colin Campbell. So, um, forks over knives, the whole forks over knives thing. The guy who helped one of the physicians from the Cleveland Clinic, and then there is a professor from Cornell University who grew up on a dairy farm, believed that the whole world would be a better place if everybody ate cheese and drank milk and ate cows. Um, and so he went to school with the plans of trying to get the whole world to eat milk and cows and came to find out that it's the exact opposite. So he is now vegan, that same Professor T. Colin Campbell, and he wrote the book, The China Study, which I've read, which is a fascinating piece of information, a lot of data, but basically looking at a homogeneous population in China. But it's very well documented that once Chinese patients in this particular study became more affluent and or came to America, um, and I'm giving a very edited version of this, sure. they gained weight and they developed cancers, like the rate of prostate cancer and breast cancer are exquisitely low. And I'm sure their gene pool has something to do with it. But when they came to the United States, their prostate and breast cancer rates escalated dramatically. And so environment has to have some role in this.
1: Yeah, without question. Wow, this has been a fascinating conversation I've learned about some things that I'd like to forget, like <laughs> fecal whatever. transplant yeah, i don't want to know anything about that <laughs> but, but God bless science if that's working, then hey, you know who who knows I may need one one day, but mm-hmm. if i do i I, I don't want to know about it i just i don't want to know about it if I need one. But uh, Doctor Zaria Morrell, thank you for joining us today. Let's now let's let's point people toward your business, your your practice. What yeah. get people if they need to contact you or want to sure. contact you? How Tennessee can they reach you? Tennessee Valley
0: Pediatric Surgery. I'm uh, James Gilbert's partner, located on Huntsville Hospital's campus, right behind the Women's and Children's Hospital in the Women's Pavilion. Our office number is two five six two six five one eight zero zero.
1: Great and uh so, if you're not in Huntsville, and of course, there are people that will hear this podcast from across the state and even outside of the state of Alabama. but, as you can tell, Dr. morell is a great resource, very well informed, and yeah, she can also gross you out, but still very well informed <laughs> so
0: I love to read and I love
1: it
0: science is fascinating to me it that's it's is, a gift from God, there's so much we don't even understand yet, and yeah. we will i I can't wait to get to heaven to ask him so many questions.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's great. All right. The Healthy Alabama Podcast is uh, produced by me, David Person, and produced in partnership with WJOU, Oakwood University Radio, Praise 90.1 FM, and is sponsored by Enroll Alabama, which is a project of AIDS Alabama. And you can go to their website, AIDSAlabama.org, for more information about the great work they are doing. My theme music is produced by my man on the ones and twos, DJ Bailey. He knows what he's doing. Until next time, be healthy.